for future. So, um, okay, so the question, first question for tonight, hope everyone can hear. Okay, thank you for last week. I listened afterwards. I wanted to know, as a follow-up, two-parter, what happens if a married woman has sexual intercourse with someone else? And what happens if a married man does the same? Let's say for argument's sake, but it's with a married woman. Is the punishment specified? Also, do you believe in hell as a punishment? Okay, so the first half of that is connected to what we discussed in the beginning of last week's session about marital intimacy and the appropriateness of those boundaries and what the Torah says about um, with respect to uh, uh, marital infidelity. So uh, the, the simple answer to that, as I had mentioned last time, is that yes, the Torah does actually uh, require capital punishment for adultery, so it's very strict. Now, in practice, you know, in, or, you know, in, in, uh, uh, to, to be realistic, meaning uh, pragmatic and practically speaking, this kind of a death penalty was rarely, if ever, actually enforced. Just like mo- most of the death penalties that are recorded in the Torah, there are many offenses for which the Torah prescribes some kind of a capital punishment, but uh, what we say, practically speaking, this was rarely implemented, if ever, and so therefore, when it's on the books that something is, uh, carries with it a, uh, the penalty of death, that's more of, a, uh, of an expression of how serious the violation is taken rather than a practical instruction. Because these instructions, because the, um, according to the oral tradition, a combination between what's written explicitly in the Torah and the oral tradition in terms of how cases are judged and uh, testimony is, um, is received and has to be validated and vetted and so on. There's so many details in the process, how warning has to be given to the violator prior to committing the offense. There are so many complications that come along with actually implementing capital punishment that it was rarely, if ever, uh, actually done. Uh, but what the Torah is teaching us is how serious this violation is. Now, as I had mentioned last time, the Torah really only focuses on married women in the framework of adultery. And the reason for that is because a man was permitted, according to the Torah, and is permitted, according to the Torah, to have more than one wife. Nowadays, that's not practiced in almost all communities uh, you know, across the globe. That is something that the uh, tradition became, uh, the practice became uh, monogamy. But the Torah did permit men to have more than one wife, so therefore the idea of a man who is not permitted to be with another woman wouldn't work well, because since the man is allowed to have uh, a second wife, the idea of um, restricting his uh, intimacy to one woman would, would contradict that. There wouldn't be a possibility of having more than one wife. So since he's allowed to have more than one wife, that means that he doesn't have a status um, of the same sort as the woman does. A woman's only allowed to have one husband at a time. So therefore, the woman is the one uh, around whom the uh, issue of adultery revolves. Now, if a man has relationship with a, uh, you know, has sexual relations with a married woman, a woman who is not his wife, who is married to somebody else, then both the man and the woman are culpable for that, assuming that it's a consensual relationship between the two of them. They're both equally responsible for that. It's not more on the woman than on the man in that case, because that was the question. The question was, what if a married man does the same with another married woman, meaning a woman who's married to somebody besides him? The same punishment and the same severity is applied to the violation of both partners in that case. It doesn't matter that the, that the man technically could have another wife, but he's not allowed to be intimate with someone who is the wife of another man. So therefore... 
In that case, both of them are held equally responsible. The only exception, the only case in which you could say there's a double standard, so to speak, uh, with respect to men and women, is that since a man was permitted to have more than one wife, therefore he's not restricted. He doesn't have exclusivity, the idea of exclusivity in his marriage, because he's allowed to be uh, polygamous. But um, that doesn't mean that he can be with somebody else's wife. And as I said, nowadays the practice is the accepted uh, the accepted tradition is that we don't uh, we don't we don't allow polygamy anymore, but it was permitted mainly in order to uh, facilitate you know the growth of families, basically to allow for uh, having more children and uh, uh, reproducing more and uh, you know building up the the Jewish people, but not uh, not because men are supposed to be living a uh, Hugh Hefner type of uh, lifestyle if they have a um, if they have alava shalom, you know he's no longer with us. But in the um, in the uh, if that's not what the concept of the Torah was. The concept of the Torah was that a man would have to be fully responsible for the woman in every way and be able to provide for her and be able to um, give her his full attention uh, in their relationship. And if he wasn't able to do that, then he wouldn't be able to have another wife. But the purpose of it was really to have more children only. Um, and that's why a woman wouldn't be able to have more than one husband, because for her, having more than one husband would not allow her to have to carry uh, more than one pregnancy at a time anyway. Um, do I believe in hell as a punishment? So that's actually a really hot topic. That's actually, in a way, more controversial than what I just said, because everything that I just said is practically written in the Torah, and anybody... Uh, and, and I think that the answer to that would be uh, the same from, uh, from any rabbi. But do I believe in hell as a punishment? It's more complicated. This is actually something that I think is a, um, if you're asking for my personal opinion, see, the language of the question is, do I believe in it? Uh, if you're asking for my personal opinion versus whether you're asking for the opinion of the Jewish tradition. So to put it in context, there is a difference of opinion among the rabbis, whether there is such a thing as gehinam, whether there's such a thing as an actual punishment called hell, uh, or whether there is a, there's a positive reward in Olam Haba, and what happens to the individual who is evil is they simply don't have the opportunity to benefit from that, uh, from that blessing of Olam Haba, of eternal life. But not that there is eternal punishment, just that they are denied eternal life. So when we say, every Jewish person who is, devoted to the principles of Judaism, of course, and is a believing Jew, has a portion in the next world, implying that somebody who is not a decent and upstanding member of the Jewish people will not have he will not have a portion or she will not have a portion in the next world. That is the ultimate punishment according to those who don't believe in hell. So this, the two uh, uh, views are represented usually when this discussion is, you know, when this topic is discussed, um, as the views of Rambam on one side, Maimonides, versus, let's say, Nachmanides um, and other scholars. The Maimonides was of the opinion that the ultimate punishment, really, for a person is to be denied the opportunity to have eternal life. What greater punishment could there be than that? What benefit is there in torturing a person for eternity? Who, who benefits from that? If the individual can't be rehabilitated... And, uh, and nobody will see that punishment to be deterred by that punishment. So then what is the, uh, you know, what is gained uh, from the torment of a sinner in the next world? So 
the ultimate punishment in Maimonides' mind, in the Rambam's mind, is the fact that the person is denied the opportunity to have the relationship with God for eternity that he, he or she would otherwise have enjoyed in Olam Haba. The other side of the uh, argument is that, no, Geinam is, uh, it's not that uh, God takes pleasure in the punishment and the torment of the sinner. It's that there's some purification of the soul that can take place. Now, obviously, nobody in Jewish tradition believes in a fiery, physical place called hell, like what is uh, presented in Dante's Inferno or uh, what you find in Christian literature. That certainly is impossible because we know that the body does not survive death. The body is laid in the ground and returns to dust. It is the soul that moves on. So whatever the punishment is has to be a punishment that's relevant to the soul. So even those who maintain that there is Gainam understand it as some kind of a wrenching um, and difficult experience of purification and transition after death, that a wicked person has to have their soul kind of like cleansed from the wickedness before they are able ultimately to uh, partake in some kind of, uh, of a, a glimmer of eternity. And maybe in some cases, they simply are... Uh, uh, so in that way, actually, Gainam could be conceived of, could be considered a kind of a blessing... It's kind of a, it's kind of some of an of an advantage in the sense that it allows a person who's otherwise imperfect or other, has certain um, impurities in their soul or or imperfections or defects that need to be corrected to have the, to undergo that correction uh, and be admitted to olam haba. The idea that really geinam is not a final destination even for the wicked person, but is rather um, uh, a process that the soul goes through to enable it to gain access to Olam Haba. So in that case, it's, so that means that it has a happy ending as well. And that's why it says the, the wicked and Gainam are only judged for 12 months. That's the maximum that they're judged, meaning to say that that experience, whatever it is, is only temporary. And ultimately what is preserved, what is extracted from the person that was good and that was uh, redeemable will move on to Olam Haba. Um, they, where what, what was in, an interesting discussion between the rabbis also was whether the person who is utterly wicked and really has nothing, uh, you know, nothing redeemable about them has such a thing as Gainam or simply has nothing. And the Rambam's understanding is emphatically that the individual who has, uh, who has nothing uh, to recommend them, that has no substance to their soul at all, simply disappears, just is, you know, extinguished at, the, at death. And uh, some of the rabbis saw that as... Uh, unjust, because why should, uh, why should there be no penalty at all? Why th- should there be no punishment at all for a person who has committed horrible, uh, heinous, wicked acts for an entire lifetime? They just, their life just ends and there doesn't seem to be any comeuppance or any consequence. But um, this is where the Rambam's view, which is, is, he has a very staunch view about this, that the ultimate good for a person is not their physical welfare. It's not their physical or emotional welfare. It is their relationship with God. So in denying that person eternity and denying that person a relationship with God, that is the ultimate punishment. There's nothing worse you can have than nothing, than non-existence, than non-connection to God. So this is a debate among the rabbis. I tend to... Um, I think lean in the direction of the Rambam only because um, it seems to me to be a very persuasive and uh, and and a very um, coherent way of understanding Olam Haba. But just like any of us, you know, I don't have any 
Um, I don't have a, 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 the ability to really comprehend Olam Haba. None of us really do have the ability to comprehend Olam Haba. So to have a definite answer to that question, I would have to plead ignorance on that. But I could say that, um, that, uh, uh, that Olam Haba, that, that the idea of Gehinam, to me, the Rambam's idea is the one that, uh, that, that I think of when I think of Olam Haba. Now, is there... Uh, so what? So in with respect to infidelity and the, the punishment for that. So as I said, that's something which where really the Torah prescribes actually um, the death penalty for that, um, and also has the idea of karet for all of the um, violations of sexual uh, immorality. The Torah prescribes karet, which is a very severe punishment, which is generally understood as meaning that the person loses their olam haba. And again, that would come back to what we're talking about here. That if the idea of losing Olam Haba just means a complete non-existence, or that means some kind of a suffering uh, as a prelude to a kind of inferior uh, existence in, uh, in the next world, that is up for debate. But um, that in this world, the punishment that's prescribed explicitly by the Torah is the, is the capital punishment. Okay. How do you answer? Now we'll come to the next question. Okay. How do you answer the following argument about the Torah? It seems so outdated and sexist sometimes. Like in the case last week about different rules for men and women in terms of sex or having more than one wife, why isn't there equality? Why don't rules change with the times? How is it different for, than, for example, in Afghanistan, men can have three wives, but a woman can be killed for smiling the wrong way at another man or any other backward society where women do not have the same rights as men? Aren't we all the same in God's eyes, or is God sexist too? Wow, that is a very strongly worded question, but I think it's a very fair question, something we have to consider um, in all honesty. There's no que- there is no doubt that the Torah was given at a time uh, and place uh, and, and in the context of a culture and civilization that was a patriarchal culture. And that was true both at the time the Torah was given as well as throughout the time of the Tanakh and even through the times of the Talmud and all the way down to pre-modern times that uh, the society was extremely patriarchal and that and Jewish community and Jewish culture and, uh, and society and attitudes were no different. So that's a very fair question to ask. There's no question about that. The question, I think what... Um, so in that sense, yes, many of the stories, for instance, that we encounter in the Torah portray a society in which men and women are definitely not equal in terms of their participation in uh, public activities. That's for sure. And the roles that they play are clearly distinct. And the Talmud is, of course, also dominated by male voices and, uh, uh, a male perspective. There's no question about that at all. I think the, um, but m- of course, at the same time, men and women are in the eyes of God equal. And the Torah is very clear about that and says that both men and woman were created in the image of God. And that means that both men and women have the ability to understand and relate to God and serve God equally. I think where I would differ with the uh, with with the question, where I part ways with the view of the que- of the question, is that I don't see it as such a great privilege to be able to have many wives or to be able to um, 
or to be able to have sexual freedom for its own sake. And I think this is where we can kind of put the Torah maybe into a different perspective. The Torah views our social roles or our uh, practical, uh, practical activities or our uh, uh, political uh, position and all of these things in a kind of different context, I think, than what they are seen as today. The Torah is about obligations to God and it's about serving God and coming closer to God. And in that sense, men and women are 100% equal in their ability to do that. Now, what about their ability to, uh, uh, to uh, engage in society in different ways? So when it comes to that, society has changed. Society has evolved. Most of the halachot that are, and as you see, that you know, nowadays we, we insist on monogamous uh, marriages. We no longer uh, tolerate or accept the idea of polygamy. We don't uh, suppress women, prevent them from having uh, professions or pursuing an education or anything like that. Were there, uh, was there a time in which Jewish society did cling to uh, what we would consider today outdated views of women's roles? Of course they did, because that was considered to be the correct understanding at that time. In fact, they would have given you scientific and anthropological arguments for why women and men can and should occupy different roles in a society that's what's best for the civilization and that's what's best for the family and that's what's best for the men and women based on the differences that they perceive between men and women. In retrospect, we understand now that, um, that this was a mistake and that uh, many of the differences that they perceived were actually created by the way the society was set up. Um, and uh, for, for instance, if you don't provide a, 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 a comprehensive education to women, of course they're going to seem less educated and sophisticated than men because they're not off, offered an equal education. So what do you expect? Um, but they didn't see it that way. So it was kind of like a chicken and egg situation. Uh, you know, they saw it as, well, women are not really attuned to becoming educated, so therefore it's a waste of time and resources to educate them, when in reality what they were observing was simply the result of a society that didn't expect much of women and uh, didn't challenge them intellectually to the same level that it did men. So to address the uh, to address the question a little bit more in its you know uh, a little bit more directly so rights and privileges um, the main right and privilege that a person has as a human being is the right and privilege to stand before God to serve God to study Torah to do mitzvot to fulfill their God-given purpose in this world and in that sense men and women are absolutely equal and when it comes to the way that the Torah set up the family unit, or the way that the Torah set up society, many of these rules and regulations are the product of the time at which the Torah was given, or the time with the, at which the sages, during which the sages spoke about these things, and are uh, are reflective of the context in which they emerged. However, there are certain laws, such as, for instance, the way that the marital relationship is set up, where the, the exclusivity of the woman's relationship to the man, which is based on the idea of, creating, of raising a family, that's an eternal value. I think that, that principle is an eternal value. What's changed is how we view the man's role in, a, in, a, in, in a, a marriage relationship, that we don't see the man as 
um, having a simply a transactional relationship with a woman in which she is a vehicle for him to produce more children. That's what's changed. We now understand that there is, there is to be, there can be, and there should be a deeper relationship between the man and the woman, which requires him not to be involved in other relationships uh, simultaneously. That it's not healthy psychologically and it's not healthy for the growth of the couple. Um, and as I had mentioned in the last uh, class, or the last discussion, you see that, uh, for instance, our patriarchs, unless they felt compelled to do so, really were not typically married to more than one woman. And most of the righteous people in Tzaddikim, great people in our tradition, had one wife and one wife only because that was considered something that was a last resort to have a second wife when someone was unable to have children. But the ideal was always one man and one woman. And um, only in exceptional circumstances, the Torah allowed more than one wife. It was never considered an ideal. And I think now more than ever, we can understand why it wasn't an ideal, because now more than ever do we appreciate the intellectual and emotional connection and bond that is formed between a man and a woman that goes beyond the physical transactional component of the traditional idea that the man provides the, um, that the man provides sustenance uh, and livelihood, and that the woman provides children. We we have a, a different concept of the of the relationship and the partnership of a man and a woman today, and we're not bound. I mean, I think the main point is we're not bound by the social context in which the Torah was given. We can learn lessons from the Torah and apply them in the social context in which we exist. And in certain ways, the social context and civilization has grown and matured far, far beyond the civilization at the time that the Torah was given. And that doesn't make the principles of the Torah less valid. It just means that now we're able to apply those principles actually in a society and in a context and culture that's much more friendly to the ultimate ideals of Torah. For instance, the Torah really doesn't like slavery. It tries to restrict slavery. It tries to curtail slavery as much as possible. And, uh, and yet it tolerated slavery. And the reason why it tolerated slavery was because that was a component of the culture at the time which the Torah was given. And, um, and there was no way for the Torah to uproot that institution, which was so deeply embedded in every civilization of the time. And uh, therefore tried to teach an ethical and moral attitude towards slavery that was to, to see that even the person who was in the position of a slave was still created in the image of God. Nowadays, we would consider the idea of slavery to be abhorrent, and we wouldn't even consider wanting to have a slave. There's definitely no mitzvah in the Torah to have a slave. There's definitely no, no, nothing praiseworthy about having slaves. Uh, and, and so therefore, we would, um, we, would, uh, we would be happy to never have to implement any of the mitzvot that the Torah says regarding slavery. And, uh, the Torah also says that a man can marry off his daughter as a child. Now, why was that done? That was done, again, in a society where a woman's prospects for economic security were determined by the person whom she married. And a person from a poor family who saw the opportunity to marry off his young daughter to a wealthy chatan uh, felt that he was preparing a future for her and was, uh, you know, was protecting her and was helping her. Nowadays, we would say that that's totally inappropriate for a father to make that decision for his daughter based purely on economic concerns at such a young age. In fact, even the Talmud says a man who marries off his young daughter should be cursed that this was considered terrible to do such a thing. Even in the times of the Talmud, they were against it. The Torah provided it for exceptional circumstances. So again, 
the Torah never legislates anything that is sexist. What the Torah does is makes room for certain social realities, cultural realities that were prevalent at the time that it was given. The Talmud does the same. And it's for us to take what is eternal, the mitzvot and the lessons of the Torah, and look at our current circumstances through it. So thankfully, the Torah would never command us to do anything that was a reflection of some kind of a sexist attitude because a sexist attitude would be a human type of attitude and it would never be the attitude of God. What the Torah did was um, speak in terms that were familiar to and acceptable to the audience uh, that received it. But nowadays, we're in a better place, thankfully, in terms of our understanding of the genders and sexes and in terms of our uh, appreciation for the... um, for the our distaste, let's say, for slavery or for uh, discrimination of any kind. And therefore, we're able to apply the values of the Torah without having to make the compromises that the Torah made when it was given to us. Any suggestions for a couple who are very unhappy, no longer in love with it, each other, usually miserable, but cannot get divorced either because of kids or financial reasons? So that's a really sensitive and personal kind of a question. Um, in general, obviously, the first recourse for a couple that are unhappy with one another would be to try to seek some kind of counseling. Um, obviously, the Torah provides for the option of divorce because there are circumstances in which it is warranted, but it is never considered an ideal choice. And certainly it's a last resort. I think everybody would agree that it's a last resort. Um, And if a couple uh, is experiencing problems, then what they really should do, and that's a very personal and very specific to their situation. So it's hard to make a general statement about it that would apply to all cases. And I would want every individual or every couple to consider uh, their own situation, Not not a sort of a general blanket answer that I'm giving, but the general blanket answer would be that a person should certainly try first, a couple should certainly try first, to seek some seek counseling, especially if they've decided that they can't get divorced for whatever practical reason, um, seek some kind of counseling to help support them through the difficult times and negotiating the relationship with one another. And um, perhaps they can reach some reconciliation or some common understanding that would be ideal. And if not, at least they would be able to learn to uh, live together as harmoniously as possible and then uh, decide on uh, a future course of action if they felt that, uh, that they needed to make a different kind of decision uh, further on in the future when circumstances were different. That would, of course, you know, that's something that the Torah provides for and allows, just doesn't consider it to be ideal. So we always try to avoid the dissolution of a marriage or a family. But uh, so as long as a couple is in that situation, they should seek, I think they should seek counseling because there's no general answer that can apply to every couple. Okay, I am struggling with staying Shomer Shabbat. I was wondering what your advice is. Shabbat is not at all enjoyable in my house. Usually there's fighting and everybody goes off to their own corners of the house. Sometimes even mid-meals, watching TV or driving to a friend is a very tempting distraction or escape. Also, does Hashem really care if I touch my phone? I'm struggling with staying Shomer Shabbat. Oh, then it was just a repeat. Oh, it was a double. Okay, yeah. So, um, I don't... We, we all struggle. We all have our areas of struggle uh, in observance of the mitzvot. And 
that is definitely part of the challenge and part of the journey of uh, developing in our Judaism. So the fact that you're struggling with uh, an area of observance is not something to feel bad about. I just want to say that to begin with. We all have areas that are a challenge for us. So um, this is your area of challenge that you're struggling. And by the way, I don't know who the person is, so I'm just addressing the person because they're saying I in the question. But you're struggling with something that is natural and normal. I remember when I was a teenager sometimes feeling very stifled on Shabbat as well. Um, I, I don't know if this, I'm not saying this person's a teenager. I'm just saying from my own experience, I, I remember times where I had, um, I, I felt uh, stifled on Shabbat sometimes as well. And it seemed very long and it seemed very frustrating to me at certain early stages of, of my own life. Um, so I can relate to that. And I think that everybody can relate to having challenges in particular areas of observance, um, especially when we are in an, an environment that it sounds like isn't so pleasant or isn't so conducive to having a meaningful or a restful Shabbat. So that makes the experience that much more difficult. There are different angles that I can uh, approach the question from. Um, some, uh, obviously without knowing the specifics of your situation, I can't address you know uh, options that you may or may not have for a different kind of Shabbat in, uh, that, that would be more pleasant. But my, my thought is that Shabbat in, is, and, and the question, I think that the end of the question really is what brought this to my attention. Does Hashem really care if I touch my phone? That way of, of framing the question, I think, points to the answer. When we do mitzvot, we should not think, does Hashem really care if I do this? Because that's looking at the mitzvah as if I break the law, I'm hurting Hashem. Hashem is going to be upset. Does he really care if I touch my phone? It's about disappointing Hashem or pleasing Hashem that I'm doing this. And, it's a, and does Hashem really care if you eat a piece of bacon? Does Hashem really care if you eat on Yom Kippur? Does Hashem really care if you wear wool and linen together? These are ways of thinking about the mitzvot that I don't think are most healthy. The healthiest way to look at the mitzvah is to ask, why does Hashem think it's in my best interest to do this mitzvah. Because it's not about what Hashem cares about. It's that Hashem has given us the mitzvot in order to bring out the best in us. So we ask ourselves, why does Hashem think it's in my best interest to fulfill this mitzvah? How is it supposed to help me? And one of the things we say in particular about Shabbat is it says in the Amidav, the morning of Shabbat, it says that when it speaks about, it says, lo netato, Hashem didn't give the Shabbat to the nations of the world and he didn't give it to the idolaters that the uncircumcised people cannot find rest on Shabbat and I always thought that was an interesting concept what does it mean that the uncircumcised people can't find rest on Shabbat what does the uncircumcised person have to do with Shabbat but it, it, I believe what it means is that Shabbat is supposed to cultivate give us the opportunity to engage in spiritual pursuits undistracted by mundane concerns. And a person who is uncircumcised is a symbol, it's a symbolic for the idea of a person who is not engaged in the realm of the spiritual. Uncircumcised means that their appetites are unbridled, are unlimited, that they're involved in the physical rather than the spiritual. And the Shabbat is made for a person who is involved in the spiritual, 
And that is the kind of person who will be able to enjoy it. And someone who is not able to enjoy it might be because they need to nurture that aspect of their personality so that they find more meaning in Shabbat. So if, a, if, uh, if for instance, um, someone enjoys studying Torah or reading books that are inspirational to them or reading books about the creation of the world, reading books about the Parashat Shavua, engaging in activities that are of a spiritual nature, that is what the time was created for. So, if a, so, I think that Hashem is trying to is it's not about whether what Hashem cares about. Hashem is, Hashem cares about us. He gave us the mitzvah. It's what we should care about. That's really important. What Hashem is telling us that we should care about, and what we should care about and focus on is how can I use time that is sort of, is separated off from mundane distractions, from my phone, from my television, from uh, petty activities, from, dis- the, from the distractions of socializing, whatever it is that, um, that we run to to distract ourselves, Shabbat is a day that we're supposed to be uh, enriching our inner lives. So maybe a step towards um, uh, making Shabbat more meaningful is to have kind of a Shabbat project, not the Shabbat project that we do um, every year, um, the, the global Shabbat project, I don't mean that, but having something that you look forward to that you're going to do that is a Shabbat activity, some kind of a, um, an activity that nurtures your soul, that nurtures you spiritually and intellectually. So Shabbat becomes a meaningful and a refreshing experience. And maybe you can shut out some of the noise in the background that's disturbing you and that's upsetting you because you'll sort of lose yourself in your own um, Shabbat experience. That's what I would advise. I mean, I think that what made Shabbat, I remember when I was younger, sometimes Shabbat seemed endless because I didn't have anything to occupy myself with on Shabbat that really engaged me. But as I became older and I started to appreciate um, some of the, uh, I started to appreciate learning more and I started to appreciate reading more. So I was able to find on Shabbat, the quiet that I needed to enjoy those activities. Um, And so that's what I suggest. I suggest finding ways you can enrich your spiritual life so that you can um, engage in them on Shabbat and sort of shut out the noise that is uh, troubling you so much. Why aren't there more women featured in Tanakh? I like these questions. We keep going back to the women's issue. This is good. So. The practical reason why there are not enough women featured in Tanakh goes back to something I answered a a couple of questions ago. That since the time that the Tanakh depicts, um, and I'm just being brutally honest here, since the time that the Tanakh uh, depicts was a time where uh, the society was very patriarchal in its structure um, and in uh, in, in the way that its society functioned, so therefore, women did not typically play a very public role in, uh, in the society, in the community. And since what the Tanakh deals with primarily is uh, the history, the unfolding history and development of the Jewish people and its leaders, and since its leaders were predominantly men, so therefore the focus always zeroes in on the men because the men were the ones who were the active participants in that aspect of, uh, of society, in the public aspect of society. That's an, what we would call an accident or a, 
um, and uh, just a, a consequence of the fact that the society at the time of the Torah was very patriarchal. Uh, and so there are some exceptions, obviously. There are some characters in the Tanakh that stand out um, that were women. Obviously, Esther is one of them. Obviously, there's also a Neviah called Huldah that's one of them. There's a Neviah that's very prominent named Dvorah that stands out. And obviously, we have Sararuf Karachel and Le'ah that are also um, focus. you know, the Torah focuses on them. But again, even there, the Torah mainly focuses on the Avot, mainly focuses on the patriarchs because they were the ones who were the public figures, even though we see in the case of Avram, for, exa- for example, that his, the son that he had with Hagar didn't count. He had to have a son together with Sarah to continue the line because Sarah was of equal, the rabbis say of equal or even greater prophetic ability than Avram Avinu. The rabbis even say she was greater prophet. She had a deeper perception than Avram Avinu. They certainly were at the very least equal the way that they're presented in the Torah. And not that Avram is any greater than Sarah. And yet, she doesn't play as prominent a role simply because in, that, in the society of the time, um, it would have been considered uh, inappropriate or would have been considered unacceptable for a woman to uh, occupy that role. In fact, even Dvorah, who does become ascend to the level of a judge and a prophetess in Israel and is actually the undisputed leader of the community and leader of the nation at that time, essentially, and people are streaming to her to ask her questions, that was considered to be uh, because the men of that era failed to provide adequate leadership. Not because a woman was, uh, was the preferred leader, but because the men failed. So this is something that's a product of the time in which the Torah was revealed. It has nothing to do with women being less significant. It's just because the practice, it's like asking why on Pesach do we eat matzah? Why can't we eat tortilla chips instead? The answer is because that's what they ate. They, when they left Egypt, they ate matzah, so that's what we eat. Okay? So in the same way, the practical reality was that men fulfilled the roles that were more public and prominent. Women did not. Nowadays, if the Tanakh were written today, there's no question that women would play a much more pronounced role in the stories than they did back then. But that's just the way that the history unfolded. How can we combat anti-Semitism? That's a tough question. Um, I think that's a question that many people who are more knowledgeable than I and more, uh, more experienced would have more to say. But I... I tend to always ask the question from the perspective of what we can do um, to promote a positive, a why do, and, the, and the question is connected to why do people hate Jews? Yeah, so I've spoken about this before. Um, it's two questions, but actually the questions are connected because um, I, the way I was going to answer question number one actually relates to question number two. Um, the root of anti-Semitism Understanding the root of anti-Semitism, or at least one of the primary roots of anti-Semitism, can help us to understand an approach to try to combat anti-Semitism. We have to understand that one of the roots of anti-Semitism is uh, the, the way that the Jewish people are perceived in the world. The Talmud say, the, the rabbis say, that why is the mountain that the Torah was given on called Mount Sinai, Har Sinai? So it says, because that from the time the Torah was given to the Jews, a hatred of Jews came down into the world. Anti-Semitism came down with the Torah. Why? Because the fact that the Jewish people are singled out as a special chosen nation automatically breeds resentment 
uh, among other nations against us. And if you look at the uh, comments, at the statements, at the um, at the books of anti-Semites, you will see that throughout, one of the themes they return to again and again is that the Jewish people believe that they are the chosen people. The Jewish people believe that they are special, that they are superior, that they are different, and, uh, and that they deserve more, and they deserve privilege, and that they're above us. This is one of the things you'll see on every anti-Semitic website and every anti-Semitic tract. You will see this idea that the Jewish people fancy themselves better than everybody else. And that actually goes back even further than the giving of the Torah. And I'm going to tell you where you can see the roots of anti-Semitism. You can see them actually in last week's parasha. You're going to say, really? How could it be? In the times of Yosef, you see the roots of anti-Semitism? Absolutely. I think that it's the key text for anti-Semitism. What does Yosef do at the end of last week's parasha? At the end of last week's parasha, the Torah tells us that he put his family in Goshen. And he made sure to provide the Jewish people, his family, which were just 70 people, in Goshen, ample food, and their own possession of a territory in Egypt, and he provided for them no strings attached. What about the Egyptians? What did Yosef do to the Egyptians? He said, where's the money? And when they ran out of money, he said, give me your cattle. And when they ran out of cattle, he said, give me, sell yourselves and your land as slaves to the Pharaoh. And, um, and I mean, Yosef didn't suggest this, actually. Um, uh, well, I, he, it's a... It was agreed upon. In other words, this was the negotiation that he had with them. Um, that, uh, that Yosef made this deal with the Egyptians. Um, he didn't force it upon them, I mean. It was something that they agreed to and they were very thankful for it. And they were very grateful that Yosef came up with this idea that they should enslave themselves. Essentially, they enslaved themselves. They said, we're going to become slaves to Paro. We're going to give up our land to Paro. And we're going to receive grain from the Pharaoh. Part of it will plant in the ground and part of it will be for our sustenance. And then Yosef went and he moved everybody around. Oh, you live in this neighborhood? I'm going to move you to a different neighborhood and I'm going to move everybody to a different neighborhood. So nobody feels like they're actually the owner of their land anymore because everyone's been relocated to a new place and they realize that everything now belongs to Paro. Nobody owns their own land. Nobody has their own money. Everyone, all the money is exhausted. All of the animals have now become the, the, the possession of Paro. All the people are now the slaves of Paro. Okay? Now, and that's what they had to do in order to receive their sustenance. In fact, that's why it says that when, when the Jewish people came out of Egypt, it says, I, I took you out of Egypt, mi bet avadim. It doesn't say, mihiotchem avadim, from you being slaves. It says, mi bet avadim, from the house of slaves, meaning that Egypt, everyone in Egypt was actually a slave to Paro. Because everyone had sold every one of their possessions, as well as their own bodies and their own land to Paro, in order to receive the grain from Yosef. So what do you see? When it comes to his own family, Yosef, placed them on a pedestal. He gave them ample provisions. He didn't ask for anything in return. And he, and he also granted to them ownership over a piece of territory that was all their own. Whereas with the Egyptians, he was harsher, he was more demanding. Not that he was unfair to the Egyptians. He treated everybody the same among the Egyptians and he never engaged in any uh, self-serving behavior for his own personal aggrandizement or his own personal enrichment. But he was, he was demanding of them. He required them to pay for what they got. And he took everything that they had away from them before giving them uh, uh, provisions that he had saved for the years of famine. So what did he essentially do is he created, and, and you'll see that if you look carefully at the text of the Torah, what does it say? It says, the only land that Paro did not acquire in Egypt of Egyptians was Admata Kohanim Lokana. 
only the land of the Kohanim, the priests of Egypt, Paro did not take. So every, they were allowed to keep their own land and have some independence. But every other Egyptian became a complete slave to Paro. What does that mean? That means that basically Yosef gave a religious exemption to his family. Right? What it's saying is the same exemption that was granted to the priests of Egypt was granted to the family of Yosef. That's why it's telling you that. That's why it's describing what was done for the priests. Who cares what was done for the priests of Egypt? It's telling you that to show you that what Yosef did was basically given a religious exemption to, the, uh, to his own family. Now, what's going to happen in the long term as a result of that? What do you think is going to happen? Over time, of course, the Egyptians are going to resent the Jews. Because what happens in the subsequent chapters is that they become fruitful and they multiply and they're filling Egypt. So what you have is these foreigners, basically, who, are, who have inherited an, a religious exemption from the taxes and the slavery of Egypt and the, uh, the land confiscation of Egypt. They're able to have their own land and independence and freedom and all of that. And they're living off of the, uh, you know, the largesse of Egypt. Meaning, meanwhile, what happens? While they're living off of the benefits and the and and the uh, and all of the uh, and all the provisions of Egypt for free, more or less, they are uh, the Egyptians are suffering. The Egyptians are toiling. The Egyptians have lost their land. The Egyptians have uh, have become disadvantaged. So, what does that show you? It shows you that the seeds of the resentment against the Jews were planted by Yosef when he put his family on a pedestal above everybody else. And, um, and there's no question. That's why when Paro, in the beginning of the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, what does it say? When Yosef died, that's when a new Pharaoh rose up who did not know Yosef. Meaning as long as Yosef was around, he was able to explain this uh, situation as he set it up. But as soon as he was gone, that resentment that had been boiling over for uh, years burst forth and they wanted to enslave the Jews. They had this resentment against the Jews. Where did it come from? From the superiority. They perceived the Jews as, as a group that was not truly Egyptian, that was not truly committed to Egypt, that was not truly a part of their nation, but was benefiting from and taking advantage of Egypt for their, they were fleecing Egypt, basically. The, the way that sometimes immigrants are portrayed in this country, you know, the, the, by the really hardcore, uh, you know, the hardcore Americans, you know, why are these immigrants coming in? They're taking everything that we have, they're getting all the benefits from the government and so on. That was the way they were perceived. But it's, it's more, actually, like what's going on in Israel today. Because when the state of Israel was established, when the state of Israel was established, the, uh, uh, the uh, Ben-Gurion agreed to allow certain students of the, uh, of, of the Kolel, of Kolelim and Yeshivot to be exempted from the army. It was a handful of people at that time. Because he understood that after the Holocaust, you know, there were very many Yeshivot were destroyed and Judaism was really suffered an enormous blow in the Holocaust. And wanted to be able to save it and salvage it. So he understood, okay, we can't have it. They, they won't go to the army. What happened? So that was just a handful of people. But uh, over time, it's grown and grown and grown. And now you have tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, of people who are living off of the government, uh, government support, government welfare. All the government services and programs are given to them. But they don't serve in the army. They don't give back. And they sit in yeshivot generation after generation in yeshivot, supported by tax dollars. Okay. Now, I'm not taking a position on that. I'm, talk, I'm describing how the non-Kolil people, the people who are not sitting in yeshivot learning all day, perceive the Kolil people as people who are takers 
As people are not really committed to the state of Israel because they don't serve in the army and they just want to sit and take of all the fat of the land for themselves as if they are some kind of a privileged class. That's our internal version, okay? The internal Jewish version of what Yosef set up for his family in Egypt and the reason why the seeds of resentment and, and, of, uh, and of hatred were sown unwittingly, obviously, because again, when Yosef did it, it was just 70 people. Nobody would notice 70 people getting a religious exemption, getting to keep their land and getting to, uh, and getting to live off uh, government welfare. But by the time of the enslavement of the Jews, it was already hundreds of thousands or millions. So by the, the population exploded. And now with that size of a population living in that way, it was a big sore thumb and it really invited the hatred and resentment of the Egyptians. So why do I bring this up? I bring this up because the Jewish people have an obligation. The Jewish, this same anti-Semitic um, perspective that the Jews are outsiders the Jews are essentially outsiders who don't really have a commitment to their host country, but are just here to fleece it, to milk it, to steal from it, to benefit from it, to, and, and not to give anything back. That is the perspective, that is the view of anti-Semites in every generation. It started with Paro. Oh, they're not really Egyptians. If one day Egypt is at war with one of its enemies, these Jews will be the first people to turn against us and side with the other side and fight against Egypt because they're not really Egyptians. They're just benefiting from living here for free. And what did Haman say? To fast forward, what did Haman say? There's a certain group. He said, There's a certain group. They don't really keep the laws of the king. They're not really Persians. They're not really a member, members of, this, uh, of our society. They're not really citizens of the kingdom. They're just here benefiting and living off the fat of the land for their own reasons, not for not because they are truly committed. And what did Hitler, what did Hitler say about the Jews? The same thing. They're not really committed Germans. They're just here to control and to usurp and to uh, and to uh, feed off of all that Germany has to offer or all that Europe has to offer. They are parasites. What is the definition of a parasite? That's what they called them. They're parasites, which means they are creatures that live off of other creatures without having to give anything back. That's what the Jewish people are perceived as. So what does it mean? It means that the Jews think they're better than us, they think they're superior to us, and therefore they have the right to take what we have without giving anything back. They're entitled to it. That's the perception of Jews that fuels anti-Semitism. I just gave you a long... Somebody could excerpt that part of the class and put it on some anti-Semitic website. I hope they don't. Um, That wasn't the intent, obviously. I'm trying to make for you the case that of how anti-Semites perceive Jews for thousands of years. And the obligation, really, the, the mechanism that Hashem put in place, and this is a fascinating thing. What did Hashem do is he said that if the Jewish people don't follow the Torah and they don't follow the mitzvot, they're going to be exiled and kicked out of the land. How does that work exactly? It works because once the Jewish people just become a nation like any other nation that simply thinks they're better than everybody else, the hatred and resentment of the other nations will boil over and they will persecute us and they'll oppress us and they'll attack us and they'll exile us. And that's exactly what's happened again and again and again and again throughout history. It's a natural mechanism actually. When do the Jewish people not suffer from hatred uh, at the hands of the nations of the world? When we live by the divine message. When we say, we're not chosen 
to be the richest nation. We're not chosen to be the most privileged nation. We're not chosen to be the nation that everybody else serves and puts on a pedestal. We're chosen to be a nation that serves the other nations by teaching them the ways of God, by exhibiting proper ethical and moral behavior, by demonstrating what it means to live a holy life so that they can emulate us. We are here to serve the God's other children. We're not here to... Uh, to be parasites who uh, simply fleece others for our own um, advantage and our own benefit. So when, we, when the Jewish people live in a way that basically they are competing for the same resources and the same stuff, they want to be rich just like the Gentiles want to be rich. They want to be successful just like the Gentiles want to be successful. They want to be famous just like the Gentiles want to be famous. They want to be powerful just like the Gentiles want to be powerful. If they're competing for the same objectives and they have the same values as the Gentiles, only we are Jewish. So we are an exclusive society. And we're not really part of the Gentile group. We're not really part of the society around us. We are our own secret society within a society that is superior. And we need to compete for our own benefit. So then it becomes the Jew team, you know, the Jewish team against everybody else competing for the same material goods that everyone else is competing for. But when the Jewish people actually live in holiness and they're not pursuing the material things and they are fulfilling their divine mandate to sanctify God's name in the world and to live a proper ethical and moral and life of wisdom, then the nations of the world will say what the Torah says they're going to say, which is that this nation, this Jewish people are so wise and understanding. We want to emulate them. We, want, we, we respect them. They will see the goodness of it. That's why you, you, you see that, for instance, um, the story is that when, when Yaakov reunites with Esav after many years, says Yaakov said to Esav, I waited until now. I lived with Lavan for all these years and I'm finally reunited with you. And what did the rabbi say? I lived with Lavan, but I kept the mitzvot of the Torah. So everyone asks, what does Esav care that you kept the mitzvot of the Torah? If that was not, not religious, he doesn't care about keeping mitzvot. He doesn't care about holiness. Why is Yaakov bragging to Esav that, uh, that he was keeping the mitzvot? The answer is that even Esav respects a person who's principled. Even Esav respects a person who has a higher purpose in life, who really, truly, genuinely, without hypocrisy, lives by it. And that's why the favorite thing of the anti-Semite is when a Jewish person is caught doing a crime, a supposedly religious Jewish person is the best example, is caught doing some terrible crime, and they can point to it and say, ah, I told you so, these Jews are not only the same as us, they're worse than we are. They're just as immoral. They're just as depraved. They're just as selfish. They're just as materialistic, but they pretend to be holier than thou. They pretend to be better than us. That's what the anti-Semite loves to find. Examples of Jews who are hypocritical and who claim to be superior, but are really even worse in some cases than the non-Jews in their behavior and in their values. So when we live up to the values of Judaism and we serve God's children and we serve the world and we recognize we have a sacred obligation to make the world a better place, then we are doing Kiddush Hashem. Ultimately, the nations of the world will respect the Jewish people when we do that. It's only when we seek the same material uh, benefits and we compete with them, but we, we compete with them but, and yet we, we consider ourselves superior. We consider ourselves innately superior 
to the non-Jews, then we bring upon ourselves animosity. But when we say, no, we're not superior, we have a superior obligation. We have an obligation to be um, examples to the nations of the world and to help the na- and to help perfect the world. Now the anti-Semitism falls away, and um, that, and so the the greatest thing to fight to fight anti-Semitism. You can go argue on campuses, anti-Israel and BDS, all of this stuff. It's all important. We have to oppose it. We have to oppose anti-Israel legislation. We have to oppose BDS legislation. We have to oppose anti-Semitic statements. We have to call politicians out on them and. And, and we have to put pressure on elected officials and, and others who, uh, who give any voice to anti-Semitism. There's no question about it. We have to fight against it. But that's not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is when the Jewish people fulfill their purpose and mission, then they will gain, they will earn the respect of the nations of the world. But if they simply claim to be superior innately because they're Jewish, they will not um, they, they will not, uh, they will, they'll bring upon themselves animosity from the nations of the world. And history has shown that again and again to be the case. That when the Jewish people assimilate and lose their sense of unique purpose, that's generally when they are visited by the worst anti-Semitism. Why is the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash so important to us? That's a great question. Um, it's a great question because it goes to the heart of what Judaism is actually all about. Uh, I've spoken to, about it probably tangentially a few times during these conversations, um, and among other, but on other occasions. Uh, it's very difficult for us to relate to the Beit HaMikdash today because most people think of the Beit HaMikdash as a place for sacrifices, and animal sacrifice is something that's foreign to us today So because we've never experienced it and we don't understand it so well. So, um, so the idea of animal sacrifice doesn't, uh, doesn't attract us immediately. Uh, but that wasn't really the main function of the Beit HaMikdash. People misunderstand the Beit HaMikdash and believe that the Beit HaMikdash was essentially about sacrifices. That's not really true. Sacrifices did occur there, but it was more of a limiting factor, meaning that sacrifices were only allowed to occur in the Beit HaMikdash as a way of kind of making sacrifice not the main focus of Jewish religion. So what is the Beit HaMikdash essentially? Shlomo HaMelech says, if you look at what King Solomon's prayer in the book of Kings, for instance, when he dedicated the Beit HaMikdash, or if you look at the book of Isaiah, Yeshayahu, at the very end of the book of Yeshayahu, how he describes the Beit HaMikdash, he calls it Bet Tefillah. Shlomo HaMelech talks about people praying either in the Beit HaMikdash or facing the Beit HaMikdash. And Yeshayahu, living a couple of hundred years later, describes the Beit HaMikdash in a very famous terms as Ki beti bet that my house, meaning the Beit HaMikdash, will be a house of prayer for all the nations of the world. He doesn't mention sacrifices. He does mention sacrifices. But when he defines the Beit HaMikdash, he calls it Bet Tefillah, a house of prayer for all of the nations. The main purpose of the Beit HaMikdash, and incidentally, what is the first thing that Avraham Avinu does when he comes to, the, to, to Israel, when he's left his home in Ur Kasdim and he comes to Israel, is he builds an altar to God and he calls out in the name of God. And, and Yitzchak also builds an altar and calls out in the name of God. And Yaakov also builds an altar and calls out in the name of God. And when the Jewish people leave Egypt, what do they say when they sing as the sea is parting? They say, Mekedash Hashem konenu yadecha. The sanctuary of God, his hand, your hands, talking to Hashem, established the sanctuary of God and they build the Mishkan. The idea of having some kind of a place, some kind of a sanctuary that reflects the presence of God on earth was the purpose of the Beit HaMikdash. And the, the, the Beit HaMikdash serves in two ways. It serves to remind us as the Jewish people of what our national mission is. 
What is our, it is the center that refocuses us, that we visit three times a year, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, we're supposed to visit there, but it stands as a symbolic representation of what is our purpose and mission in the world. That's why it was so critical, why David Melech thought it was so imperative, so important, that he built the Beit HaMikdash. Of course, God didn't allow him, but he did everything that he could to make all of the plans. So when Shlomo HaMelech did it, he did it exactly according to the specifications of his father, David. Why did Shlomo HaMelech have to do it? Why was it so critical, so important? Because to have a kingdom, to have a monarchy, to have a government is very important. But what's the purpose of the government? What's the mission of that government? What is that government ultimately setting out to achieve and to accomplish. That's what the Beit HaMikdash represents. So Shlomo HaMelech built himself a very beautiful palace, but he built the Beit HaMikdash around the same time. Why? To say that all of this political power, all of these riches, this economy, this military might, everything that they had, what is it for? It's to glorify God. It's to sanctify God's name in the world. The mission that Avraham Avinu began hundreds of years prior to that, of declaring God's unity in the world, that's what the Beit HaMikdash reminds us of on a national level. What is this nation about? What is our ultimate purpose? It's not the palace of the king. The palace of the king itself is subordinate to the palace of God, so to speak, which is the Beit HaMikdash. Now, obviously, God doesn't live in the Beit HaMikdash and couldn't because God is not a physical being, but it represents his presence among us. And therefore, it is a place that reminds us of what our ultimate purpose purposes as a nation and what all the gifts of nationhood are meant to achieve. And what is it also? It's also a place of broadcast to the nations of the world, our message. In other words, it is our national religious center. So it's where we go to reconnect with our purpose, but it's also the place that the nations of the world will come to learn about it and to hear about it, to learn about Hashem. That's why, again, Yeshayahu is the best example, although it's mentioned in other Nevi'im as well. Other prophets also describe this, that in the times of, in the future, the nations of the world will stream to the Beit HaMikdash in order to learn about God from the Jewish people, to be instructed in the ways of God, how to live their lives the wisest and best possible manner. So this is what the Beit HaMikdash was supposed to be. That's the essence of the Beit HaMikdash. It's a house where people are able to, it's a house through which we sanctify God's name by reconnecting with our purpose and also by sharing our knowledge of God with the nations of the world. And so that's why not having the Beit HaMikdash is so sad, but that's also why the Beit HaMikdash was taken away from us. Because when the Jewish people lose sight of their purpose, obviously the Beit HaMikdash can't function anymore. Because since the whole purpose of the Beit HaMikdash is to represent that purpose and to help us in that purpose, if we don't have, if we're disconnected from, we lose sight of the purpose, the Beit HaMikdash cannot function uh, to, uh, you know, to guide us or to, to, be a, to be a tool for us and a means for us to achieve that, um, uh, that objective anymore. In fact, there was one famous philosopher who said, the Beit HaMikdash was not destroyed. He wasn't a religious Jew. And he was an irreligious Jew. But he said, the Beit HaMikdash was not destroyed. It ceased to be the Beit HaMikdash a long time before it was destroyed. Meaning that the Beit HaMikdash means the holy place. So he said it ceased to be the Beit HaMikdash long before. Uh, the Beit HaMikdash could never be destroyed. The, the, but the temple of the Jewish people stopped being the Beit HaMikdash a long time before it was destroyed. Meaning to say that it was when the Jewish people were no longer sanctifying God's name and living by his will, the Beit HaMikdash just became a shell. It was no longer functioning the way it was intended, and that's why Hashem took it away.
<clears throat> okay, so what, last question. What advice would I give to a person struggling to connect to Hashem? So that is, a, again, I think a very personal question, and it would depend upon what the nature of the struggles of that individual uh, are, like exactly what they're going through and what, where they are finding difficulty. But um, the Torah gives us a path to connecting with God. The, the, the rabbi is actually uh, quoting, a, um, quoting a pasuk in the book of Yirmiyahu, of Jeremiah, when it says, why was the land destroyed? And Jeremiah says, it's because, Yirmiyahu says, because, al-uzvam etorati, because they abandoned my Torah. That's why. They abandoned my Torah. And the rabbis say, if the Jewish people had kept the Torah but abandoned God, it would have been okay. But, ab- but abandoning the Torah was worse. Because if they kept the Torah but abandoned God, the Torah would bring them back to God. And that's what the, the, the path of the Torah is. That connecting to Hashem is very difficult because Hashem is uh, beyond their understanding and beyond, beyond their comprehension and invisible and, um, and unknowable. And so the only way really to connect to God is through the wisdom of God and seeing the wisdom in his Torah. When we see the wisdom in his Torah, that's what draws us to God. And so a person should try to find a way to connect to the wisdom of Hashem in their life, whether it is from learning Chumash, whether it is from learning uh, books like Mishlei that deal with practical application of the wisdom of Torah to life, or whether it's even learning about the creation and the handiwork of God to be able to appreciate the greatness of nature. Seeing God's handiwork in nature for some people is an amazing way to, uh, to find a connection to God. Seeing some aspect of his handiwork that draws us in. Because ultimately we can't connect directly to God. He's beyond us. He's so far beyond us. But what we can do is find, a, uh, find an experience uh, dis- where we discover the uh, we discover the wisdom of God, and we are able to perceive the goodness of God. Um, some for some people that can be in the study of in a traditional study of Torah, finding a finding texts or books that that enlighten us and that inspire us to appreciate the wisdom of God. For some people, it could be learning about how your body works, anatomy and physiology, seeing the incredible wisdom of God and His handiwork in your own body. Uh, sometimes it could be looking at uh, the way that, uh, you know, looking at nature. Sometimes it can be um, seeing the wisdom of God in, uh, in Pirkei Avot. Sometimes it can be seeing the wisdom of God in other dimensions of the Torah that, in which it's revealed to us. But I, that's, the, the point is that I think that that's what the rabbis are saying there. The real lack is when we don't have a connection to Torah. If we have a connection to the Torah, as a, a rabbi once said to me a very funny thing. I just remembered it now. He said to me years ago, he said, you know what? For a long time, and he was saying, this rabbi is much older than me. He was saying when he was a principal, I think, of a school years and years ago, he said, you know, I think for many years I was basically an atheist, but I loved learning Torah. Now, I don't really think he meant he was an atheist, you know, but he meant I didn't really think about God very much. I thought about understanding the Torah. What's going on in this parasha? 
What's going on in this halakha? What does it mean? How does it work? Why is the logic of the halakha this way? Why is the logic of the halakha that way? Learning the Talmud, you get involved in all of these debates and trying to understand these different concepts and learning the same thing in Tanakh. There's so many interesting stories and questions and moral dilemmas and, and, and there's so much profundity to it. Sometimes you forget you're learning the wisdom of God. You just get drawn into learning the subjects themselves. So I said, I felt like I was an atheist. I never really talked about or thought about God. I thought about the learning and God was in the background somewhere. And I think that that's a very typical attitude. And one of the things, it's very funny that Christians oftentimes criticize Jews. They say, why don't Jews talk about God more? They always talk about Torah. They always talk about the, the, the figures in the Torah, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the stories of the Torah, or they, in the Talmud. How often do they talk about God in the Talmud? If you ever study the Talmud, very rarely they talk about God. They talk about the technicalities of the different laws and the different requirements, what's uh, the obligations, the prohibitions, the mitzvot. They do talk about Hashem also. But most of the dealings of, with law, when they talk about the laws of the Torah, they don't mention God. So I say, well, you're so involved with the law. Where, where is God here? What's the answer? We see Hashem's wisdom in the laws of the Torah. That's how we see God's wisdom. And we actually repeat this every day in the Kriyat Shema. Because we say, We say, you should love Hashem, your God, with all your heart, soul, and might. And then what does it say after that? These words that I commend you today should be upon your heart. The rabbis say, the first pasuk is the goal, loving God. The second pasuk, the second verse that says, place these words upon your heart, that's the means to get there. Through studying the Torah and seeing how beautiful and incredible it is, that's how you develop a love and devotion to God. That's the road to get there. There's no direct route. You have to go through seeing the beauty and the wisdom in God's handiwork. And so for every person, that's something that every person can find a point of entry into. And that is the royal road to a relationship with Hashem that the Torah provides for us. To study the Torah, see its beauty and be drawn to the Creator through that. And Bezrat Hashem, we should all have the zechut to get there. And obviously it's something that we're always developing. And there's nobody who's finished with that. There's nobody who has concluded that. That's something that's an ongoing process, uh, all life, you know, for a lifelong, a lifelong process of growth and development, appreciation of Torah. And um, it's a humbling experience, but it's also a very exciting experience when you engage in that journey and you see the, the depths of Hashem's infinite wisdom unfolding before you. And it just, uh, it's so vast that it draws you in. And uh, before you know it, you fall in love with Hashem uh, and you never expected it. And that's the, that's the goal of the Torah for a person to have that kind of experience. Okay, so Bezrat Hashem, we will see, I don't know if there's going to be more questions coming into our, uh, to our uh system that we'll have another Q&A or we'll announce a different, uh, a different subject or a different topic for the coming week.